those two guys gave me an opportunity to um, to head the and create their design department because they didn't have it when I joined them. So uh, so from there, they they really taught me the ropes of of restaurant design. Uh, operations, um, how restaurants flow, how to make money out of a restaurant that flows well, um, good directions to go in from a design perspective and, and what to stay away from. So It's waiting on fries that you don't get it? You don't. What do you mean you don't get waiting on fries? Hopefully the customer never hears waiting on fries. But All this time on the entree and it's perfectly executed and then you're it's like, ready to go. I forgot to fire the fries. <laughs> I just always use that when I forgot to put somebody's order in and I was like, hey, I'm just waiting on the fries. It's going to be two more minutes. Realistically, I come back 10 minutes with the food. Exactly. <laughs> they just know that their food's not there and the service said they're still waiting on fries. I guess we're just waiting on fries. <laughs> We've got a great show today, right? Awesome show. We have Rocco DeLeo, founder of RD Studios. Nice. And we're going to talk to him about a handful of great things, I guess, from building restaurants to finding that one chair. So, Jay, you went out to eat recently. Where'd you go? Yeah, we, we were down in Florida. We took we took the family out. Actually, the family took us out, and uh, I I ordered. Well, where did you go first? It was a big national restaurant chain, like the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> Fine, it was the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> but uh, you know, we sit down, and the waitress comes over, and she's all ready to take these orders. And I decide I'm going to have a dirty Bombay martini. Okay. And I quickly threw it out to her. I just told her Bombay dirty up, and that's what she would in take that in from the bar side of uh, taking a drink, right? And she came back and popped it down to me, and there were just no olives in it. And I was like, where's... I said, oh, did you happen to run out of olives, maybe? I would never deliver a dirty martini without olives in them. Did you, you actually know? say it like that? Did you happen to run out of olives, maybe? Yeah. And okay. uh, she said, oh, no, I... You did, didn't say did, anything wait, wait, about olives. Did you first, like, address the fact that there were no olives, or did you just say... Hey, and then the server came over, and you're like, "Did you run out of olives?" Sort of, but did in you more first finesse. Say like, "Where the like?" Excuse I'm me. I'm just trying to figure out how you address the you situation. Because the first one way, or uh, you know, one way you kind of sound like a dick. Yeah. And the other way, maybe you're being respectful about like, not having hey, olives in your drink. Hey, I, server, would you run out of olives? We have our own quote unquote dick way uh, of being in New York, where we're just quick to the point, right? I wait, time. Were have, you in New York or were you on vacation? We're in Florida, which yeah, is a very lax place, okay. right? Uh, so relaxed. whatever she goes how many olives would you like two and I go no never two two is bad luck it's got to be three so odd you, numbers only you sound kind of pretentious I, you know what these, uh, I am a little pretentious in some senses Florida I guess all right people. so that, that's issue one whatever I get my olives I'm cool I'm not throwing any fits because we work in this industry right, right. I, under I understand maybe she doesn't really know so then we're sitting here and I'm eating my Cheesecake factory size burrito, which is about a 10-foot shoe size. So like 13,000 calories? Exactly. Yep. Took all of those down. and uh, Was it a good burrito? It was It was pretty okay, yeah. Did it have not, the sauce over the top? No grape. Yeah, there's sauce on the top. I hate that. My sour, I can't stand it. You, then it you makes, have to eat it with a fork yeah, and knife. It makes no sense. Like, yeah. why wrap it up and then put sauce on top? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sour cream on the side, guac on the side. You know, fantastic stuff. Uh, this whole time... All of the family. Because then like it just six. falls all over the place and it gets all soaked and everything. I know what you mean. 
And, and there's six, moved on. there's six of us here. So all these plates are starting to pile up and me being a guy that works in bars and restaurants, well, I'm just stacking, stacking them perfectly. Yeah. I'm making them so nice for this young, she wasn't even young, this lady <laughs> to just take away ever so gracefully. You didn't so have to say that. None of us had seen her. You could have said young lady. It would have been just well, I'm fine. I'm paying the picture because she's not new in the game. She's He's been worried here about for a while. calling out the Cheesecake Factory, but he didn't want to. You know, yeah. talk about the age of the age. Age doesn't matter. But uh, you choose no, to focus on. I, I stack everything it's just nice. a number. I stack everything nice here on the side for her to take away ever so gracefully, and I'm having a Larry David moment because I'm just sitting here staring at these plates every time she walks by and says, "How are we doing over here? How are we doing over here?" She doesn't take the plates. They're just here on the end of the table in the middle, perfectly saying, "Please take me." At some point, I just took the plates. I took the garbage that was accumulating. I just put it on the table next to me. I was like, if that doesn't go away in a super passive aggressive sense, there's a problem here, right? Jay, I think I think the problem is you're taking your like super high New York standards of like service and trying to make them relevant for where you were when maybe perhaps they have like a more relaxed idea of service down there. I should have just went to the Manhattan equivalent down no, there. No, right? no, no. No. I'm gonna I would I disagreed with everything up until the plates part of it. That drives me. I get me what he's nuts. saying. I get it what he's saying. It drives but me crazy. Maybe some people aren't going to start clearing your plates until you're done with but your there, meal. But there are people that can't eat with me because, like, I'm done, and then I just go, I do one of these, and I just move my plate in front of the, <laughs> like, to the left. So, like, as soon as I'm done eating, like, everybody's there, and I'm just, down. like, there. Yeah. And then whoever's next to me, like, dude, like, why is it in front of me? And I'm like, well, they didn't take it away. I don't want it in front of me. But it, I don't understand. I, I don't get understand it. it. Like, I get it. I get what you're coming from. Especially in that scenario where you stack the plates and put it there. We're, like, begging them to get the plates off the table. Like it's, I can't stand it. I get it. I get it's it. It's such a pet peeve for me. I agree. I agree. So, guys, you drink anything decidedly better over the last week? I sure did. Like what? I've been trying out a new brunch drink that I'm working out with. Well, one of their um, one of Diner Brews ciders. So you're putting hot sauce and tomato juice in the cider and calling it a Bloody Mary. What? No, sounds good. No, that's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm glad you're both my friends because he's like, oh, that sounds good. And you're like, oh, that's gross. <laughs> What's the cocktail? Yeah, what I'm just trying to. Scotch and blue they cheese Accentuate for the cider a little bit. And since pomegranate juice is nicely in season right now, I'm trying to add like another version of a mimosa to the to the brunch menu. Pomegranate so and apple. I'm adding a little pomegranate into the apple cider. It gives a really nice color throughout the thing, kind of like a dark pink. And what else you got? Well, that's it. It's, it's very, very basic. Yeah, it took just, them two weeks to put that cocktail together, and you just came and over and here and shat on it. You know, we, we tried the cider. I, you know, we tried the Diner Brew cider. He's got a... You know, a bunch of different ones aside from the beer. And then try to just spruce it up a little bit with a little extra fruit. Making brunch better. I'm doing not, all that stuff. But I'm it is impressed. the final week of I'm the Decidedly Better Challenge at Diner Bro. What's so that? So the Decidedly Better Challenge is you as the drinker making the choice to drink Decidedly Better. Uh, post a story or take a picture of yourself drinking a Diner Bruco product at the Diner Bruco tap room. Yep. Tag you and a friend, and you win some cool shit. And make sure to use the hashtag DBC Decidedly Better. There you go. And that's at Diner Bruco on Instagram. Who's this guy? This is Rocco DeLeo of RD Studios. Man, architect and design professional. Come on, Nooms. You don't know this stuff? No, not yet, but that's why he's here. Hey, Rocco. Tell us how you got into this and kind of your day in, day outs. Yeah, so, um, you know, how I got into this, I, I pretty much stumbled into it. Um, you know, being young, drafting, sketching, you know, not really knowing what I wanted to do, but knew I had an interest in, in design and knew I had an interest in, in drawing. And, you know, I had a good mentor who kind of pulled it all together for me and led me in the direction of, of going to architecture school. So I did, and 
um, you know, just kind of fast forward till now, um, you know, from where I started off at, uh, you know, just focusing on residential work that evolved into doing restaurant work. Um, you know, one of the cool things that I learned out of the whole recession was you had to be diversified, um, you know, given that uh, the recession hit the residential market so hard. Um, the group that I was with prior to me going off on my own only did residential and pretty much went belly up, um, lost their last client. I got laid off. Um, so I really had nothing better to do but to open the doors to my own business. So I did. And I ran with that from January 1st, 09 is, uh, is when RD Studio was created. And from there, I grew into restaurant work when I got introduced to uh, Andy Fortzheimer and, and Sasha Marbatus, uh, who are the co-founders and owners, or previous owners, of Bar Taco and, and Barcelona Wine Bar. And I don't know what they saw in me, but uh, you know they saw something that I didn't see in myself because I knew nothing about restaurant design whatsoever. So those two guys gave me an opportunity to um, to head the and create their design department because they didn't have it when I joined them. So uh, so from there, they, they really taught me the ropes of, of restaurant design, uh, operations, um, how restaurants flow, how to make money out of a restaurant that flows well, um, you know, good, uh, you know, uh, good directions to go in from a design perspective and, and what to stay away from. So through all of those years, you know, kind of ended up where I am now with, uh, you know, me continuing to run my own business um, where we focus on a whole bunch of restaurant concept on a national level to a local level, you know, to working with Justin and helping him out on, you know, wherever he needs help on, you know, his next endeavor on this new restaurant. By the way, when's it going to open? Yeah. Uh, well, you know what I know. <laughs> I'd love to know <laughs> that Wasn't the right last now. number 190 days? Yeah, 100, somewhere close. around there, ballpark. Yeah. So when that you, seems close enough. So when you came in now, too, and started working with the uh, Barteca restaurant group at that time, right? Yeah. How many restaurants did they have already operating to the point where they said, all right, now it's time that we bring somebody in to really develop this concept a little bit better and, and really navigate the arch architectural standpoint of it? Yeah. So they had seven restaurants uh, when I rolled in in 2012. Um, and at that point, uh, they... Uh, they were invested in uh, by a local uh, PE group out of Greenwich. Uh, and they knew at that point, uh, and, and part of the structure of the investment was, you know, they needed to scale both concepts. Um, so they knew that they needed to bring architecture uh, and interior design in-house. And that's, you know, when he went searching for someone and, and found me. So you, uh, so you sit down, you start having talks, and I, I could imagine that, your sit down is asking, what do you want to accomplish in this? Uh, did you have a direction that they were looking to lean towards with their properties and, and developments? Yeah, I mean, you know, when Sash and Andy were doing it by themselves, um, Sash is the creative director behind, um, you know, both concepts. He's the one who pretty much created the vision for them. Um, doesn't really have a formal uh, uh, culinary background, but he understands food. He understands the simplicity of food, uh, you know, without overdoing it, kind of just letting the raw nature of, of, of protein and produce kind of be what it is, you know, rather than dressing it up with, you know, too many sauces that 
makes chicken not taste like chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, so he brought that aspect to it, and he brought the business aspect to it. Um, but uh, you know, when they brought me on board, it was all about scaling, scaling fast uh, to about four or five restaurants a year. Um, but more importantly, you know, through that whole process, you know, one of their biggest goals is that they didn't want to be a cookie cutter restaurant. Uh, having each concept, you know, look familiar to one another, uh, you know, have those similar traits that a brother and sister would have, but, you know, understand that, you know, everyone has their own personality and they wanted every single one of those restaurants to have their own personality. And one of the things that they did incredibly well was each restaurant fit into the context of the neighborhood they were going into. And, you know, yeah, Barcelona's and Bar Tacos, again, they all generally look the same, but you know, we always kind of looked at the culture and looked at the neighborhood to see what it had to offer um, and kind of pulled those inspirations into the design to, to make it, you know, your local restaurant, your local bar, so that people were familiar with it rather than this, you know, space shuttle from, from outer space just kind of dropping and plopping in the middle of a neighborhood and everyone wondering why the hell it's there. And and that's really true, too, as we do have... Uh Barcelona and Barteco, uh, Bartaco are not really on the West Coast at the moment, I think, no? No. Uh, excuse me. They have as Denver or Colorado is as, as west as they go. Well, we're, we're heavy up the east line. They're very uh, much. And when you do walk into all of them, they are all very familiar yet completely different simultaneously. So, for an instance here, Porchester's Bar Taco is almost nothing like Stanford's Bar Taco, or go further up the line to, where's the next one, Darien, Westport area? Westport. And they're all similar, but n- absolutely nothing in that layout is really the same. Correct. Um, you know, all of it's bar-centric. You know, the, the bar is the heart of, of that restaurant. Um, but, you know, one thing that differs from... Bar Taco Porchester, the Bar Taco Westport. Um, yeah, the color scheme is the same, but you know, Sasha had the brilliant idea of, you know, going to the local Westport library and, and talking to the local historian there and pulling a whole bunch of uh, pictures from the archive of kids playing on the beach, you know, old lighthouses that exist there, beach houses, and pulled in all of these, you know, photos as the artwork for that restaurant, again to kind of bring it back to um, you know, to the context of the community. That's almost like a, a Easter egg, if you will. I've never known that as many times as I've looked at all the photography around the restaurant at all. I, I would have never thought that came from somewhere from the history of the town as yeah. far as a generic stock photo would be. That's a nice little point. So how many restaurants did you actually have your hand in designing from when you started with them to when you stepped away? Uh, so there were seven. Uh, when I left, there was about 35 restaurants in total. So, Jeez. yeah, so... It's a solid number. Yeah. <clears throat> so you mentioned that the bar is the heart of the of the restaurant and bar taco, right? And Anuma's described Manhattan as the kitchen being the heart of the of the restaurant. So wh- what do you think when you're designing? What's like the driving force of deciding whether you want the bar to be the heart or the you said bar centric or whether it's like kitchen focus? Well, listen, you know, it all comes down to. The concept, it all comes down to the restaurateur, right? You know, I'm just a tool that that someone's hiring to kind of help turn this idea into a reality. Um, You know, I did that for Andy and Sasha, and I'm doing that for all of my clients now. Um, So, you know, it all, again, it all comes down to to the concept. You know, do you want a more bar-centric design and concept, or is it more culinary-driven? 
Um, you know, and from there is, is really how you start master planning uh, that floor plan and, and the orientation of the kit of parts. And maybe it's a combination of the two. Um, you know, we explored uh, this similar idea of, you know, what if, you know, it's not just bar centric and what if it's not just, you know, culinary driven? What if we literally tie the kitchen to the bar, you know, and have it as, you know, this one grand experience? Um, you know, we've done that before. Uh, so you see that a lot with like oyster bars where they have like the oyster bar exactly. connected to the bar. So there's always something going on and you sit down with a lot of actions. What was the uh, thought process behind Eugene's? Because that's sort of an interesting concept that ties into the food and the bar and just the general appearance. Well, we yeah. should really intro Eugene's also, though, as, as being almost like an old school diner, right? Correct. Um, you know, when um, <clears throat> when David Dabari, the, the, the chef owner of, of Eugene's, approached me, um, he all he told me was that he wanted this badass, unique, chef-driven diner set in a 1970s basement. That's awesome. And that was it. You know, that's that's what he gave me, that that one statement. And what was your first thought after hearing that? Like what what one unique like item or showpiece stood out in your mind? You know, one of the things that that got me really excited about it was when he told me he wanted a rotating uh, cake display case. <laughs> you know, and he wanted to make sure that the rotating cake display case was literally you know, what we would call the bar, what we would call the cake, yeah. I mean, the, the kitchen. Uh, you know, in this particular restaurant, it was a cake-centric, you know, restaurant. Literally, he wanted to make sure no matter where you were in that restaurant, from when you walked in to when you walked out to the bathroom, that everything and everybody revolved and saw that cake display case. And it's and, right there, and right at the end of the bar. And that's, you know, what we did. We started with pinpointing where it was and worked the remainder of the restaurant around it. And what's really interesting, too, uh, in, in that design, I actually just went in there for the first time uh, a few months ago, and I had some bone broth, and it was served to me in a teacup, which to me, I said, is fantastic. I'm just sipping my soup out of a cup, essentially. But the uh, top 50 bar list just came out recently, and Dante's in New York City, uh, top that bar list with number one and its layout is really the layout of a cafe. Um, so it took some of that old minimalistic attitude and, and simplified design to really be something that stands out very different. And once I saw that and I saw Eugene's, I said, this is very similar too. this is a almost a modern retro diner, if you will. Uh, the front of the bar area when you walk in, it has that three-inch padded uh, elbow area where you could put your arms down. You didn't get rid of that at all in, in the build-out here. Um, the back of it on the right-hand side is an open kitchen, so you can see everybody cooking your food as well. And then there's tables to the back of this restaurant. Uh, it really is a beautiful thing. And as the tables keep on turning, as time goes and different things become popular and trends, I feel like we're almost at the beginning area of the cafe's revitalization. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's kind of one of the things that, um, you know, we focus on. Um, you know, we're not the design firm, and, and I don't think any of our clients are either, you know, where they're looking for these elaborate, you know, showcase and showpiece Ferrari-type designs uh, that feel pretentious and, 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 you know, not approachable. Um, you know, a lot of the concepts that we're doing are really just subtle gestures of textiles, finishes, and, and, and fixtures, you know, to just 
the way that I look at my you know work is almost just kind of putting a very simple backdrop to let the food kind of speak for itself, you know, so that you know at the end of the day people are going to a restaurant to eat, not to go observe architecture and interior design, you know. So how simple can I make a table to make that plate? Of bone marrow in a teacup, you know, look incredible. Um, you know that, that's that's what we, you know, philosophically kind of gear all of our designs to, and around. When you also look at these these buildouts, in your head, do you ever make it overly too complex for yourself, and then take a step back and say, "Hold on, this doesn't have to be this complex. Always. It could be also simple." Always, we always start high and then kind of work our way down. Um, and not high like we're overcomplicating things um, or high over designing things, but, you know, we're always dreaming big, uh, dreaming big and, and trying to kind of rethink, you know, what a wine case can be, but yet still make it functional and not make it glamorous, um, you know, or, or, or rethink a tabletop or rethink a table base. Um, you know, we're, we're always dreaming big and thinking high and, you know, then we get the reality checks of budgets and, you know, and, you know, some way or some way we kind of start value engineering things out and, you know, without compromising the overall goal of the concept and find middle grounds and, and run with it. But those budgets always get in the way. I was just going to ask like, you. Like in, every time. If we could just get rid of budgets. I mean, like unlimited money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we no, just had unlimited money. <laughs> Did you have to scale some things back with Smokehouse? New Rochelle, oh, Virgin yeah, I doubt too. It. Justin's I'm a pretty logical guy. Like he definitely stays within the budget at all times. No, I definitely don't. Mike, Mike probably. <laughs> I was gonna say Mike looks like back to guy. the budget. I'm like, I don't know. I have the crazy ideas. Like oh, we can't spend two hundred thousand dollars on. I was trying to give you credit. I didn't want everybody to know your secret. No, but, we're not getting an Instagram counter and Facebook counter to let people know how many people we no, have that, following. That's that we did. That, we already that, have that. that. We did. No, that we did. <laughs> All right, so when he, when someone gives you an idea like that, right? Like you say, just gave you a sentence, and he goes, you know, build this restaurant. How much of it comes? Are you drawing off of like imagination or like your own head, or do you just start like, all right, I gotta go hit up some diners? Well, that's what we did. I mean, the first thing that we, the first thing we did, we we took a tour. Uh, David, his wife Kathy. Um, uh, Mandy, my, my senior designer, and myself, we took a trip down to New York City, and we just, we had one particular restaurant they wanted to go see, uh, and they wanted us to see, and then we kind of wandered around aimlessly and just kind of gathering inspiration. Um, you know, but to, to your first question, you know, a lot of our designs comes from experiences, comes from our travels, comes from, you know, our books and, you know, our design and our design heroes and, and, you know, just a lot of it, just constantly absorbing ideas and constantly absorbing, you know, ideologies of, of good design and good practice and, you know, wait for the opportunity like you knocking on my door asking me to design a restaurant for me to just pour it onto that piece of paper. Um, so it's not like we're just pulling things out of thin air and, you know, recreating the wheel. It's more of drawing inspiration from others and, fine-tuning it to, to our style. Do you have a texture, maybe, that you go to almost as a default and try to stop yourself occasionally and say, no, 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 I've been using that a little bit too much lately. Maybe we should scale out of this. No, no, man. I, I've, 
I've been saying this for a long time. Uh, I hate the word favorite. I don't have a favorite of anything um, because I think, you know, once you start having a favorite, you find yourself in a pigeonhole of using it over and over and over and over again. You know, we have philosophies, we have understandings of, of you know, good design directions in our office, um, you know, that we follow through with, with almost every single project, but nothing that is, you know, specification, if you will, that we just kind of cookie cutter, you know, from concept to concept. And that's a, that's a good statement, too, where you just say if you do start to have a favorite, you are kind of just in, in this rut of doing the same thing over yeah, and over you're again. You're not reinventing yourself. And I as mean, somebody, Even like a menu, right? I mean, oh, you constantly sure. need to reinvent that menu oh. to keep people interested and keep, uh, keep people coming back. And figure out what goes with your operations and what's going to yeah. do whatever. As a kid, you would draw, I suspect, or drafting came across while you were in college? Drafting came across when I was in college. When I was a kid, uh, I would draw Bart Simpson over and over and over and over again. I don't know why. Um, maybe it was an easy cartoon character for me to trace and 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 draw. But you know, between that and just um, yeah, I would take things apart a lot. Um, I would uh, I would constantly like take my Nintendo set and take it apart and put it back together because I was just so interested on what the hell was inside this gray box um, and what makes, you know, Super Mario walk on my screen. So Did it not work? that, no, not that I ever figured out. <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> but I can tell you Super Mario, they don't walk across my screen anymore when I took the thing apart and tried putting it back together. But, um, you know, I was just always curious as a kid uh, when it came to understanding how things were assembled, put together, and, you know, I was always sketching, so. So you were working for another company before the recession. Yeah. As a architect. Yeah. And as that happened, there were layoffs, I'd imagine. Right? Correct. The whole office was laid off. So from that point, I assume 2008, 2009 area of those months were a rough time. And then at some point you just said, I'm just going out and starting it myself. Yeah. It wasn't a long time. Um, so the the market crashed, I think it was August of 2008, um, I remember it vividly. We were actually having an office outing uh, in New York City. We were going to visit the MoMA, and uh, it was the time that at the corner of the streets they were selling newspaper in these racks. You know, and the headline was the, of the day before. You know, Dow Jones crashes 500 points. Um, so you know that was eye-opening, uh, but we still had you know a, a handful of clients uh, still in, in our you know, in our mixed uh, to keep the office alive. But then it was, I think, the first or second week of December that the last client we had um, pulled the contract and, and the company had no clients to support us. So I would think it was the day or two after that that news came through. The partners of the firm sat us in their conference room and, uh, you know, one of the partners was crying. It was just whatever, it was sad, um, but laid us all off. And so, you know, know so... Some people went outside and go, went to go smoke a pack of cigarettes. You know, others went to their desk and cried. I went back to my desk and I took the resume that I had and I quickly started putting it on Craigslist and everywhere else that I can plaster it to find another job. Um, but realized real quick that no one was, was responding. Uh, and the few people that did respond, you know, were going to pay me minimum wage. I was going to be some slave in a closet office in New York City. So... 
I had no debt. I had no kids. I had no responsibilities. I'm like, I had nothing to lose. So I took the leap of faith and, and ran with it January 1. So within three weeks, I went from having no job to having a job. Or having your own business to, to yeah. that effect, right? I created my job. So now the other question is too, because <laughs> people start businesses all the time and then they go, all right, now where are the people? How, how did you start getting the contracts to do what you're doing from literally almost nothing? Network, 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 network. Um, you know, uh, I brag about it a lot. Um, since since 2009 to even now, I must spend maybe like 500 bucks annually on branding and marketing, which has to do with me uh, pulling together portfolios, um, little portfolio pa- uh, pamphlets that I send out to clients, you know, that are that are meeting me for the first time. I think it's a little bit more personal than just giving them a business card or telling them to go surf my website. Um, but uh, literally, it's all word of mouth. Um, you know, when I first started, I literally called everyone that I can possibly think of. Um, those that were in the profession, those that were in the industry, to family, to friends, uh, to friends of friends, and just let everyone know what I was doing. And, you know, it started off small. Um but it, it grew first year from 2009 to 2010. I grew about 20%. I kept growing about 20% annually uh, year over year. And and now with this huge construction boom that we're having and, you know, the strong market, uh, in my opinion, uh, you know, we've pretty much doubled in size in the past year and a half. So it's it's been good, but it's all been word of mouth. What are the majority of designs that you're currently doing? Uh, I know, so restaurants are a piece of things, but you're also doing some interior design, I guess, and residential and buildings maybe? Yeah, so we're, we're a full-service architectural and interior design firm. Um, we focus on design and project management uh, for the residential and restaurant industry. Um, we, we also tried focusing on retail, but it never really took off. So, uh, largely the work that we have is about 70% restaurant work and about 30%, uh, residential. So, you know, we are, you know, master planning from, from inception, you know, to all of, you know, the design phases that we typically know of, you know, all the way into construction administration and, you know, doing our best to give our clients a turnkey product, um, you know, with as much support and service that we can offer. And so now to take back uh, to Barteca, that was 2012, you said? Yeah. You you said they took a leap of faith, and that's maybe because you didn't have as much restaurant build-out experience at that point, or? I I guess so. I mean, but, you know, again, you know, going back to, to networking, my old boss, uh, who laid me off, his office was across the street from the Barteca headquarters. Um, when Sasha was looking for someone to, to head his design department, he went back to my boss because they were on good, you know, working and friendly relationship. Uh, asked him if he knew of anyone, and my old boss told him to give me a call. And that's kind of how all of that played out. And again, I knew nothing about restaurant other than opening up a menu and ordering from it. So. Whatever my boss told Sasha, you know, really, Sasha went with his gut and, and gave me an opportunity. And that, that leads me into 
saying, okay, we know how to do designs as we've been doing that for some time now. But now in restaurants, it does tend to be a little bit more of a science as where maybe you create intentional bottlenecks or where you need very open areas for acoustics or whatever it may be specifically. Uh, But in that transition of starting to do more and more restaurants, after you did the first Bar Taco or Barcelona, did you maybe learn some things that said, oh, I have to change this in the future to make this more, uh, more presentable for people to congregate or enjoy their food or, you know, whatever it may be. Constantly, 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 constantly. I mean, every single project. Um, we did uh, an 11th month postmortem walkthrough where uh, we went back in uh, at 11 months after we opened up the doors uh, to basically assess how the restaurant looked generally to see how the materials we selected were, hold, were, held, were holding up. Um, to talk to operations, to talk to the manager, to talk to the bartenders, to talk to the chefs, to talk to the dish, uh, to the dishwasher, and interview all of these people to see what we did well, to see what we did poorly. Um, you know, to to sitting down t- for lunch and, and dinner to, you know, also kind of uh, feel the experience that everyone else was experiencing. Um, and basically just being hyper, hyper, hyper critical on everything that we were doing. Uh, you know, and, and some of it and most of it really was, was hard to take because right? it was all kind of a self-reflection of, of how well you did. Uh, but we learned so much through that process of just how to better the product, uh, how to refine it, how to better the experience and all of it. Uh, you know, even to this day with, with my clients, it's all about right customer experience. You know, what can we do better? to better serve our guests, to have them experience something that they haven't experienced anywhere else, um, you know, how to reduce ticket times, how to, you know, put on a better show, you know, from a bartender's perspective uh, to sell more drinks. Um, you know, we were constantly reevaluating everything we did. So you touched on a little bit what I'm going to ask, but when you design a house, like let's say you're building a house from scratch, the the end the end success is the happiness of like the people that are going to live there right so as long as they move in and they're happy with what everybody look what how the house looks and how they live in it like okay then we consider the house as a, a success is a restaurant like how do you ultimately gauge was this a successful build out or a failed build out because the owner can have an idea and walk in and like love the way the build out is but then you know the place flops or, you know, maybe their sales aren't, you know, whatever happens. And it's not always necessarily due to the build out. Sometimes people don't know what they're doing or the product is not right or the location is not right or whatever. But is there like a benchmark that you say, is it different for a restaurant? Like, how do you gauge that? Yeah, again, I think that benchmark is that 11th month postmortem walkthrough, you know. um, So not numbers per se, but just like, Listen, you know, we're constantly getting comment cards forwarded to us, you know, uh, particularly when it's critical on, on how a restaurant operates or, or how a restaurant feels or if it's too loud. You know, well, why is it too loud? You know, so we, we're constantly getting that feedback. Um, you know, is the, is the question more on why restaurants fail because of design or? No, I guess what I'm saying is more like, is there, is there a, when you're designing a restaurant, you want to hit a certain number and do you have to design it? in a way that's not just aesthetically pleasing, but 
that's going to generate the sales numbers too that it needs to generate in the space. Got it. So the performer of the restaurant. So yeah. So I mean, it all comes down to the performer and the economic model or the economic model of 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 whether or not your restaurant's going to be successful or not. So you know, having an understanding, uh, and I didn't really get too much into this. Um, you know, with my current or past clients, you know, they had someone on the accounting side do it, but you know, I have uh, an understanding of. You know, they have a rent roll, they have operating costs, um, they have a certain ROI that they want to hit, and, you know, all of it backs into how many seats and how many times they can turn that seat every single night. So, you know, having that understanding of, of, of how many seats they need to perform their numbers is pretty much my kind of get-go to laying out a restaurant. You're contributing to restaurant success, obviously, through the build-out as well. But to, you know, touch on what you just said just too was there's a whole other aspect of that, too. And that's how how is the restaurant run? Does the owner know what he or she is doing in the restaurant to actually bring money in, bring clients in? And it's not just an architectural issue that occurs on that side of things, no? Well, but I, I before you jump into that, I think it's important that you're – bring in the right person to do the design that you want to do as well. Cause like you can hire, you can hire anybody to do like an architectural design. Right. But if you have no experience in like, a, we walk through that restaurant that we almost took in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Right. And we walked into that floor plan and I think all of us were kind of like, I don't understand how they ran that. Right. Did that. So, you know, part of that is just not having, not setting it up right to like execute what you need to do. And if you're not, hiring the right person to kind of like guide you or talk you out of your crazy idea. You know, like I want to put this over here and someone's just say like, well, it's not going to work. You know, and, and I think I better understand your question now. Um, you know, it's finding that balance in design and, and in operations uh, and just general functionality of what a restaurant needs to work well and feel good. Um, is important, particularly when, when hiring a designer. You know, architects are notorious, and I'm an architect licensed, um, but just given the formal training that I've had, um, you know, I kind of shy away from, from the norm. But generally, architects always want to kind of over-elaborate uh, and almost kind of um, over-accentuate code requirements. You know, if, if a 36-inch opening is required, they're going to make it a 42-inch opening. You know, but, you know, one of the things that if you're not well trained in restaurant design, you know, everything is about footsteps, right? You know, Mm -hmm. the less steps you take, the quicker the service is going to be. The less steps you take away from your service station, the more service and attention your guest is going to get in that table. Um, So, you know, the proper placement of a waiter station to a certain dining section and making sure you have enough waiter stations in your restaurant you know, to accommodate the amount of seats and sections you have are incredibly important because the last thing you want, right, is to have your server, you know, serving a table, table 10 at the front of the restaurant, to have to go all the way behind into the kitchen to get them a fork to come all the way back because you know when they get back into the kitchen, they're going to be looking at their cell phone to see who texted them. And it's going to take that much longer for that guest to get that fork. Rather, if you give that server that waiter station and everything they need in that waiter station to serve that section, there's no reason for that survey to leave, which optimizes guest experience. So that's, you know, what we bring to the table, um, you know, with all of our projects. 
I, I think steps matter tremendously. Uh, and people think I'm crazy all the time when I complain about something uh, as from the bartender's perspective, say I'm working the server well, uh, the service well, and I am getting slammed with tickets during prime time. I have to uh, not only make the drinks that are somewhat near the well, but then I have to walk all the way around the block to go get wine glasses just to bring wine glasses back over to the service station. Uh, I go, why do we have all these glasses of wine on the other side of the thing when the service printer is right here? And now I've just walked back and forth six times for each ticket pretty much to have to get these wine glasses. The kids are like, just just deal with it. Oh, you crazy? I go, yeah, but the workload could be so much shorter. We don't have to have this many bartenders like tending to one single ticket. It makes no sense. And, and it can be as easy as putting uh, a drain board next to you, uh, you know, with, with glass racks that go underneath and clean glasses on top, you know, for you to have everything you need within arm's reach or at least, you know, with a 180 degree turn of your torso, you know, which is really how we design Um and making sure that every single one of these cocktail stations are identical so that you're not retraining, you know, with every movement that you take. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's some of the errors that, that, and issues that, that we keep seeing. We get much deeper with design, partitions, and concepts with Rocco DeLeo of RD Studios. But the rest of this interview will be updated in full. But in the meantime, find Rocco's information in the show notes and subscribe to the audio feed so you don't miss new releases. Waiting on Fries quarters in full effect. Judge Jay residing in the case of Waiting on Fries against the Yelp viewers of America. Prosecuting attorneys are Anu Bandel and Justin Zato. Order, order, order. All right, this is what we got this week for you. First time customer out Saturday night after dinner with a friend. Walked into an empty bar. I mean that literally. There was no one tending the bar. After waiting about 10 minutes, my friend and I grab our own beers and sit down with the four people sitting in the corner. The bartender comes back from what I can only assume was a lengthy smoke break and is furious with us for getting our own drinks. She would not stop harassing us about it. So we pay her for the two beers and decide to try our luck at the next bar over. The bartender next door refused to serve us because, quote unquote, her friend told her what we did. I never go to Decatur Square bars because I've heard a lot of negative feedback on the service, patrons, and atmosphere. My fears were confirmed and I will not be returning. What? It just sounds it sounds so odd. Yeah. Like what a weird review. I think I think this person is focusing on the wrong things. Like they have to go behind the bar to grab their own drinks. That's a big no-no. Like you should I expect mean, to be thrown out after So that. like I can understand writing a review and I've been to plenty of places where you know it's kind of dead and and it's not good. Like you walk in and there's nobody there. But my general reaction to that is not like it's not to go behind the bar you know, and get your own drink let me just go back there and get myself a beer like, do you ring yourself up while you're back there no like that's <laughs> it sounds like something else was going on i once uh, i used to have the the camera control on one of the bars and i would open it every so often to kind of gauge what kind of business we we're having in that night and one night i opened up the camera control and literally the one new guy that i hired for a monday night slow shift is literally in the bar with about 70 people on the other <laughs> side. And he wasn't fast or speedy. He was good for a Monday night at that time. I said, shit. I hopped in my car. I sped over to the bar to help them out, because that's what kind of guy I am, obviously. What a nice guy. 
and I get behind this bar and I help him start pouring these drinks. Sure enough, as I'm walking into the bar, there's a kid from the other side of the bar pouring his own beer. I have never yoked up a kid quick enough and threw him out of the bar. It, what drives people to think that they could just pour their own drinks? Even right. if nobody's behind the bar, simultaneously, I kind of respect the person that poured their own beer because there's no one behind the bar for so long. I mean, I think part of that, we can get into a generational gap because there's people yeah. not there's respecting people, anything. Exactly. There's people that like would do that days, and there's people that wouldn't do that. You know, like I would I would just decide, okay, I can't get a drink. Like, yeah. I'll just go somewhere else or, you know, whatever. But Never have the, I thought I the could young, just grab the, my own beer. Yeah, the younger generation just seems to think that they're entitled to everything and they can just do whatever they want when they walk into a place. But I, I just it just seems weird to me. Like if you walk into a place and it's empty, like at least in, in your scenario, the place is full yeah. and you're just like waiting for a beer for a long time. So you just get tired of waiting for a beer because that's like my thing to hate waiting for a drink. I can wait for food or whatever, but I, like I want, I want, I want my drink right now. Snappy. Like get it to <laughs> me. I need a drink. But um, if it's empty, like my desire to stay there is not. Exactly. This is maybe isn't there. the place for me at that point. Is there, was there a follow up to those <laughs> girls that walked into an empty bar? And, you know, there was no bartender, and they just poured their own drinks? There, there was, and the, the bartender writes back here, First off, I should have just got the cop outside instead of being a nice person and had him taken to jail. So many other things I could have done to ruin her night, but didn't. Just to have her unappreciative, disrespectful ass try and ruin my day, fucker. I shoulda, coulda, woulda so many things, but I was trying to help these drunk bitches out. That's what the fuck I get. Hand plant emoji. Not happening next time. Big girl panties on because no matter what, people are miserable and want to ruin you just like they've ruined themselves. Also, her Yelp picture is fucking photoshopped, period. That bitch was 300 pounds easily, period. Oh, come on. It, you know, size doesn't matter when it comes to things like getting your own beers. You know, nobody's more entitled than anybody else. So I mean, we what we what we have here is is a uh, what I like to call a shit show. Yeah, it sounds like the bartender wasn't properly doing her job to ensure that her customers were being customers and not. Can I just interject her sign off bartenders. real quick? I just realized underneath that she put "fuck you, comma Karen" middle finger emoji. I really hope it said "watch me win." <laughs> no, 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 watching me win. I wanted to watch me win so bad. Uh, you know. Also, there's been a time too where I've turned around and I literally have seen a kid that jumped over the bar with his stomach just to grab a bottle from my side of the bar. How, how uh, do you jump over the bar with your stomach? Like on your stomach? Like they leaned onto their stomach so over the bar top, like, so like, yeah, like bellied across the bar. That's yeah, and unfortunately stupid idiot didn't know what he was doing and he wound up grabbing a bottle of blue carousel which <laughs> mind you what do you drink you're drinking that straight fantastic buddy good for you uh i also jumped the bar and had to escort him out you know what have at it you know you want a blue blue carousel straight up exactly Cheers. that's exactly what i'm talking about so guys we should probably check our voicemail real quick you're always about these voicemail checkings huh let's yeah, go yeah i'm interested in what the people have to say
We got no discounts, nothing was comped, no big deal. The bartender proceeded to scoff at my tip when he saw it and remarked, I thought industry people weren't cheap. This is ridiculous, right? I tip more if the person is a friend of mine or the service is exceptional, but I'm a single mother of two and I don't think I should be ashamed for not tipping obscene amounts just because I'm industry and that's what industry people do. Thoughts? Okay. I, I kind of I feel this one a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Um, when I was younger and when I was straight bartending, I threw away money like it had no other home. So I would I would go out, I would basically bartend all night and then go out all night and either spend all the money I had made for the night on beers or whatever, and then tip would be included because you know we're all part of this community and I expect them to come back and give me a similar tip. So that was that de- that was definitely my out outlook at that point. But as I've gotten older, I will say. I kind of see where she's coming from. Like the excessiveness is not, it's not really necessary. And I think my perspective has changed also from being, um, from being an owner now versus when I was just a bartender, I will go, I will go to a bar and I will leave a good tip. So if my bill is $30, you know, my tip probably would be between 10 and 15%. No, dollars. dollars. Oh, dollars. I yeah. was going to say, no, I'm still a, you know, 20% above tipper. Yeah. I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to be at least, my bottom is always 20%. Like you start at 20, whether you suck or not, like yeah. you're getting 20%. And but then are you going to leave a $6 tip on the $30 bill in the local bar that you're just going to, or do you just round it up to the 10 and be like, Hey, yeah, I'm in the industry. For right? okay service on a $30 so bill. I think I probably, I'd probably round it up to 10, but yeah. the excessiveness in that of like, 70% or 100% tip. Like that's like, I'm going to leave a $30 tip on a $30 bill. Tip the bill. Unless you like know this person yeah. and it was like awesome and service. Probably not. Probably not. And the same thing, like I have kids now, I got a house now, I have a wife now, like that money needs to go to somewhere more responsible, you know, somewhere more important. Yeah. That. And I also, I also have the, and not to bring down the importance of the bartender, but you don't, you definitely you know, a don't 25 scoff at a tip. percent tip is a, is a good tip. Yeah, like I don't care if you're an industry or not. If you get 25 percent tip, it is what it is. And it's just poor professionalism to sit there and complain about it in front of the person. Yeah, like, and to say like, weird. oh, I thought people were cheap. Well, you don't know what she needs. Like she's working hard. Maybe maybe she needs the money for something else, and yeah. she can't afford to give you like just you know bonus money. And hopefully that guy doesn't run into a. Or a girl, I don't know who was the bartender, but maybe he doesn't run into a situation where he can't afford to give a hundred percent tip because yeah. he's balling out every night. And first of all, let me let me preface that too. If I go to a bar with like two or three buddies and I spend like three hundred dollars, <laughs> is my tip supposed to be three hundred dollars? <laughs> like if I leave a hundred dollar tip on a three hundred dollar, I mean maybe bill, in this bartender's that, eyes it should be. Is that bartender gonna be like I thought industry people weren't cheap? If you're going <laughs> like, to a bar and your tap's three hundred dollars, you're definitely going to the wrong bar. It should not be expected that you're tipping the bill or anything in, in that sense, right? Like, how many times would you come in, just and, and check me at Black Bear uh, in those days? And, yeah, I would take care of a handful of your beers on a busy Friday, Saturday night. It's It doesn't matter at the end of the day because we have so many bodies that are coming in. And if I poured you a, you know, vodka soda or whatnot, uh, that costs us 30, 30 cents. I throw it on my buyback tab. And I, I think I remember you coming in, still taking care of me on, on the reciprocal end. I, I mean, for sure, I did, and I think we're a little closer than, like, you know, it's <laughs> yes. definitely a little closer than just, like, hey, another bartender that I know. But I, I will, like, just my perspective changing is what you just said is a perfect example. For the most part, 
as an owner and has now gone through the gone through the grind in the industry and actually gone through the grind, not the grind I thought I was going through when I was bartending. Because yeah. let me tell you something, that is not the grind. You're is not at all. You're making good money. You have you're like relative, living life. Yeah, you relatively have no responsibility yeah. at the end of the night. Like you go home and it is what it is. We going going through the grind of actually like running through this business. I I've gained more respect for my my colleagues in the industry. So what you just said is that you you know you take care of this guy and take care of that guy. I I mostly frequent places that I either am familiar with the owner or the management staff or at least respect that staff. And if I'm going to you know over tipping is almost like a precedent for that bartender to give me a free drink. And I understand the cost of that free drink to the proprietor or to the to the actual house. Right. Like you just said it cost us 30 cents. That's incorrect. It did not cost <laughs> you 30 cents. That's your that's your cost. The, the bottle you, of well vodka. The, okay, but the, but the point is what do you sell it for? We'd sell that for a markup of eight dollars. It cost you eight dollars. It didn't cost you thirty cents. It cost you eight dollars. Yes, and I did put it in on my buyback tab, in which I was allotted. At but the what end I'm of saying right? is, in where I am at now, you understand I that eight dollars. I, res- I understand that eight dollars, and yeah. I'd rather not be taken care of. You know, and I don't expect it. Like you know, if I have a random night out and I go out, I don't expect like my colleagues to just like buy me stuff. True, I'm not buying them anything. You come into my store, I'm I'm charging you. Everybody pays. Everybody pays. You know, like that's that's the deal. So, you know, I, I don't expect it. So I'm not I'm not gonna in, try to do. I don't want to over tip and make that expected make it so that of that they bartender. Owe you or you owe them, or yeah. I think it's disrespectful to to a colleague to go in and over tip their bartender so that their bartender doesn't charge me for a drink and then he in turn doesn't get those. It's the same reason I wouldn't use like Uber Eats or something like that. Like if I want to get something to go and they don't deliver, I'll go pick it up. Now, you know? s- somebody that is actively behind the bar still now, too. I have a whole list of restaurants that I have to go check out or bars I have to go check out and go visit my comrades that are working those nights to have them, as they've come in to me and see me and leave what we call the rotating 20 uh, on the bar top, which many bartenders do do. Well, here's something. You can come to Manhattan and don't have to worry about that 20. Oh, no because tipping. tips included. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I, I mean, for instance. You can come by like, guilt-free. Fair. And the other night we went out and had a, uh, a late lunch. And oh, at Manhattan? I could, no, somewhere oh. more local. And at the end of the day, uh, one of my buddies wound up taking care of the entire bill, which was very gracious, did not need to be done. And also, like you said, I don't go in anywhere expecting anybody to take care of me in that sense. Uh, if that happens, fine. But simultaneously, yeah, we left 50 bucks on top also because the bill was taken care of, right? Thank you for that, by the way. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not cheap per se. But I think that leaving a twenty, like a well above average tip, is more than acceptable once you've reached like a certain point. Sure, and we don't know where this girl is located regionally as well, right? Like seven dollars could go a long way in that town. Uh, in a city atmosphere, seven dollars can't buy you a stick of gum. Um, That's not accurate. I, it's not fully accurate. But I'm exaggerating, Nooms. Right. I was exaggerating. It was an exaggeration. Just wanted to put that out there for people. Going cost less than seven dollars, but simultaneously, it was very unprofessional of that bartender to scoff at that. At the end of the day, nobody should be scoffing at any tip that's coming in. Why did he even know what the tip was left at that point? Right? Like, did you open the book instantly to take a look at this tip? You should never be doing that in front of a guest. I mean, that's the that's the big problem. Number one, that the girl that's asking the scenario, she shouldn't have been put in that situation. Like, if you're if you're you if you feel like seven dollars is what you want to leave. 
Go for it. Aside aside from it being like zero dollars, like don't not tip, right? right? But like if you're, if you're gonna tip, like, if you're gonna decide, like I'm gonna give a seven dollar tip, and it's in with within the means of you know normal tipping, you know whatever. If it was that's above the normal tip. If that's what you want to tip, tip seven dollars. Like yeah. you know who cares? But so and so thinks that's that's what it justified. You know, like give him seven dollars and walk the other way. The big problem is that that bartender, like you said, completely unprofessional. You, I don't even ever look at a bill once a customer is paid while they're there. Yeah. I just find it incredibly rude to I do agree. that because it undervalues their even their their presence. Like right. I feel like if I if they're sitting there and I just look at the tip while they're sitting there, That's, then I've what I've said is this is all you mean to me, right? And and now not, the level of service may or may not change depending on what's written on that piece of yeah. paper. So like right. I'll just put it aside and go through it later. I remember who's who if I want to judge it later, you know. But I generally don't. But yeah, yeah. yeah, that take that takes away the idea that your hospitality was genuine. Right. Yeah, for sure. Never, never look at a tip or comment about a tip in front of someone. We've got tons of great guests with a solid story to tell lined up in the weeks to come. Whether you're in front of the house, the back of the house, or looking for ownership perspective, we aim to find you gems from others that have already experimented their way to success. New shows every Monday, but be sure to hit the subscribe button to our channel's feed to easily find our future show uploads. Or take a trip over to WaitingOnFriesPodcast.com for more information.